You're listening to an Ancient Future podcast produced by St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. This is episode five of our serialization of John Bodicher's book, Ten Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments are Good News. In this episode, John reflects on the commandment regarding idols. You shall not make for yourself. Well, we don't make for ourselves graven images. We don't carry around statues and idols and see them as our gods. Idolatry surely is a concern of the ancient world. But no, John will have you think otherwise. Freedom for Imagination. This is John Bodicher. Chapter 5. Freedom for Imagination. Here is the second commandment as found in Exodus and Deuteronomy. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, this is where we have to acknowledge that there is more than one way to number the Ten Commandments. You can see for yourself how the verses that we just read can easily be seen as a continuation of the first commandment. The tradition of Roman Catholics and Lutherans counts these verses as part of number one and divides what we will treat as number 10 into two parts. In this writing, I will be following the tradition of Jews and the kind of Protestant Christians who first nurtured my faith. I am not inclined to argue with anyone about this Maybe we should call them the Nine Commandments or the Eleven Commandments, but for now, let's stick with ten. Which brings us to the topic of numbers in the Bible. Often the numbers are symbolic rather than literal. Probably the best example is the story about creation happening in seven days. To take this number literally is absurd and disrespectful of the text. Seven is used as a perfect, complete number, based on the number of days in the week, which is itself the length of one phase of the moon. We will think more about this when we get to the fourth commandment. Another example is the number 40. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness at the beginning of their freedom from slavery. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness at the beginning of his liberating work. The use of 40 in the latter story obviously means to connect it with the former story. In both stories, it means an extended time of preparation. In neither story is it intended literally. We could look at many more examples, but let's go back to the second commandment. Apologies to my Catholic and Lutheran friends. Noticing as we do that human beings normally have 10 fingers, thus helping us remember the commandments. If the words, you shall not make for yourself an idol, are not to be taken as merely an elaboration of the first commandment, 
we will need to focus on what might be meant by making an idol. Often this has been taken as meaning a visual representation of some god, a painting or a sculpture or something of that sort. There have been some spectacular fatality-causing disagreements between Christians over the use of visual art and sculpture in public and private worship. Those who disapproved, the original iconoclasts, felt that these icons were forbidden by this commandment. The iconophiles have tended to prevail among Christians, while the iconoclasts have been dominant in Islam. I want to suggest another approach to this commandment, one that will leave this long debate over the place of the arts in Christian life unresolved, but which will encourage us to see what a challenge the commandment presents to us, whatever our view of that historic debate. Suppose that making an idol refers not just to the work of our hands, but to that which lies behind the work, to our thoughts and words as well. What if it refers to our imagination? What if I am is beyond our imagination and any product of our imagination we claim as a God or even as capital G God is potentially an idol? What does this mean for what is called organized religion and how does keeping this commandment set us on the path to faithful freedom? Earlier, I promised that we would return to the story of the Tablets of Stone. Chapter 32 of Exodus contains a wonderful story that tells what happened to those tablets while perfectly illustrating the role of imagination in idolatry. There were 11 chapters of additional law, and it took a long time, it seems, to receive them, for Moses was on the mountain for, you guessed it, 40 days. Now Moses' brother Aaron has been left in charge down below. Forty days can seem like a long time, especially in the desert. The people grew anxious and restless. Who knows what has happened to Moses up there with all that smoke and thunder. We need someone who will show us the way right here and now. Aaron does not handle this anxiety well. He thinks he has to do something. Here are the steps his imagination takes. First, let's gather all our gold. What good is gold in the desert anyway? You can't eat or drink it. And second, let's make a reassuring image with this gold. Maybe something that suggests a source of food, like maybe a calf. You know, you can drink the milk and eat the cheese and then make burgers. This statue will look good and suggest prosperity the kind we saw from a distance in Egypt. Then we can have a big party and maybe folks can enjoy themselves and forget about their anxiety and get off my back, at least for a while. Well, Aaron's imagination works in the short term. In spite of the fact that they've already been given the Ten Commandments, which they seem to have forgotten. But when Moses arrives with the stone tablets, all hell breaks loose. Moses, seeing what has happened, breaks the tablets destroys the golden calf, makes the people drink water in which the ground-up gold has been dissolved. Then, the following dialogue in Exodus 32 ensues. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? 
Moses is actually offering his brother Aaron a way to excuse himself, and Aaron takes it gratefully. And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are bent on evil. They said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Whoever has gold, take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. When we have stopped laughing at the outrageous comedy of this last line, we can ponder what the story tells us about idolatry. First, there is the role of anxiety. There were lots of gods, and, as we know, lots of world-class art and artifacts in Egypt. Think of pyramids and mummies and the Sphinx. But we were slaves there, and we longed for freedom, and now we are free, and wondering why it is taking so long, 40 days, 40 years, to get our life together. The people who enslaved us seem to have a great life, so let's try to be more like them. When I review this story, I'm reminded of my Welsh ancestors, who had become virtually enslaved by the English landlords and factory owners during the Industrial Revolution. Many left for North America, the land of freedom, where all too many ended up becoming slave owners. It seems to me that we do not often learn justice from experiencing oppression. We are more likely to learn how to oppress others. The transition from slavery to freedom is not easy. A life of slavery leaves marks that can only be removed as we patiently and diligently receive the gift of freedom and discern the path that we as free people must walk. In our confusing world, we have many examples to follow. The famous, the rich, the powerful, the dominant are always before us. It is easy to try to follow their example, but hard to find our own way. In our anxiety to succeed, it is always tempting to follow the example of the very people who make us feel anxious. Freedom, in contrast, is not something we achieve for ourselves. It comes as a gift, free, but not easy, just as it was given to the Israelites. Then there is that precious but dangerous human capacity, imagination. Without imagination, we have no future and no world. Even those who encourage us to live in the moment rely on imagination to construct a sense of living and the notion of a moment. Imagination is surely one of the greatest gifts given to our species. But anxiety can do terrible things to our imagination. It opens us to the temptation to regard the products of our imagination as having a life of their own, as in, I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Once we give in to the temptation, we are no longer responsible for its product. It just is. And now we give ourselves the right to expect others to regard it so. Notice the threefold effect. First, I no longer take responsibility for what I have imagined. In fact, number two, I now find myself responsible to it, since it has an existence independent of me, 
and, number three, I assume the right to impose what I have imagined upon others, since I assume it is as real for them as it is for me. When the human imagination operates in this way, as an agent of enslavement, we may properly call it idolatry. These connections help us understand what otherwise seems very harsh about this commandment. Punishing children for the iniquity of parents sounds vindictive, as if God gets really mad if we do not follow the rules. But what if this is not meant to be prescriptive, but descriptive? We give to our children our sense of how the world is and must be. When we walk the path of freedom, we share that freedom with those around us. When we worship and yield our freedom to the constructs of our fear-driven, anxious imagination, the result is contagious. The social constructs that limit our lives, such as racism, nationalism, patriarchy, homophobia, are all forms of idolatry, spiritual illnesses that are readily transmitted. The second commandment calls us to walk away from them toward freedom and steadfast love. Now we return to the second of our original questions. What does this commandment mean for our understanding of organized religion? Some folks like to say that they are spiritual, but not religious. I believe they mean that in their search for an adequate sense of the meaning and purpose of life, they have not found participation in formally constituted communities of faith helpful or worthwhile. I also believe that in saying this, these folks are expressing inadequately but understandably what the second commandment is all about. They are noticing that on the path of freedom, community can sometimes be more hindrance than help. This is surely true of all kinds of community. There are dysfunctional families who inflict terrible wounds on one another. There are friendships which are narrowing and destructive in the sense that they shut out or even belittle or attack those outside the circle of friendship. There are nations in which patriotism comes to mean the building of walls and the constant threat of war. And there are churches and synagogues and mosques and gurdwaras and cults, etc., in which the life of faith becomes moralistic and judgmental and in which active critical thinking is discouraged and imagination is frozen. This does not mean that all forms of community are bad or that the path of freedom involves the avoidance of community. Family and friendship are essential to human good. I believe Aristotle was right when he said that humans are political animals. These are dimensions of human life which need to be redeemed, not avoided. This is not to deny the tragic fact that all forms of community, including churches, can go terribly wrong. The capacity for life together is one of the great gifts to human beings, just as is imagination. And, as with imagination, anxiety or fear or ignorance or greed or whatever can take it down the path of slavery. What the spiritual but not religious folks are seeing and calling organized religion is the path of slavery. What I want us to see is the possibility of freedom. Religious communities can become idols.
The Protestant Reformation rejected the idolatry it saw in the Roman Catholic Church, but the ensuing religious warfare led some Protestants to make idols of the Bible as they imagined it, or of doctrines telling us how to interpret the Bible. I have seen churches make idols of popularity, adherence to organizational rules, and forms of political correctness. In each case, possibilities for freedom are lost. The second commandment, then, shows us the path by which we can enjoy our freedom while remaining open to the joys and struggles of life in community, including communities of faith. Like Moses, we have the mandate to challenge the idolatry of religious institutions while continuing, like Moses with Aaron, to be a good sister or brother to those with whom we share the joys and struggles. Even freedom can be imagined as an idol. When we imagine our freedom as a possession to be grasped and defended against others, as something that belongs to us as a solitary individual, we have truly lost our way. Freedom is a path to be walked with others, shared with others as they both nurture and challenge us. It is a gift to the children of Israel, and it is offered to us as we participate in our families, our friendships, our political communities, and our communities of faith. You've been listening to a podcast in our serialization of John Boddicher's book, Ten Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments Are Good News. I'd invite you to consult the show notes where you'll find a link to the web post for this episode. And on that post, we will be including each of the episodes as they're released so that it's easy for you to go back and pick up one that you may have missed. 10 Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments are Good News, is easily available through many booksellers, both online and the bricks-and-mortar sort, and a particularly affordable edition of the book in Kindle format is available through Amazon. Music for this series was provided by Steve Bell. We are grateful to Signpost for their permission to use this music. We're also grateful to John for taking the time to so carefully record these, to Kevin Grummet, Larry Campbell, and Bram Ryan, who did a lot of the background work on this audio, and to you for taking the time to listen, to think, and to dig deeper with us in these podcasts. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.